Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. I am delighted today to talk with Courtney Ahn, also known as Corn, a Korean-American, multidisciplinary designer and illustrator, and anti-racist, anti-oppression activist and educator. I believe Corn is one of the most important voices on Instagram today. She uses her platform and design chops to create beautiful, educational, and hard-hitting guides and other messaging to speak out against racism and oppression, among other important topics, and is dedicated to dismantling white supremacy and systemic oppression through her design practice. In the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, she quit her cushy agency job to work full-time as a freelance designer and hasn't looked back since. She chooses to work specifically with BIPOC clients and on projects and with organizations that align with her values and are making a difference in their communities. Corn exemplifies the spirit of Gen Z, a passion for change and speaking truth to power. She is also an amazing example of living and working your values. Let's welcome her to the show. Corn, so great to have you with me today on the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Thank you so much for being here. I could not be more honored and blessed to be talking with you. This is truly a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so in a lot of my interviews, I like to start by just having my guests tell a little bit about their childhood. So I would love to know more about where you grew up and specifically sort of how where you grew up shaped who you've become today. Absolutely. So I grew up on the Oregon coast and like a pretty much no name, like middle of nowhere type of farm town, like very conservative. And when I think about my childhood, like a few things stand out to me, but one being that I was very much like that weird artsy kid from the get go, like very much the stereotype of like drawing all over my papers, like obsessed with drawing my favorite cartoon characters and like pretty much ruining anything I had in my home with like mounds of (laughs) glitter and paint. Like honestly, not much has changed. And two, that I lived in a very isolated, like predominantly all white town. So like I was one of the few like handfuls of family of color, like even a small percentage of Asian ones and like the only Korean one. So it's not like my experience was like an extreme because I was a lot more assimilated in American culture, um, having my mom being the primary caretaker who was white, but it definitely had everything that you would expect in a small town, like lots of Asian stereotypes and microaggressions through the years, but mostly just like an overwhelming awareness that I didn't quite fit in with other kids, like for reasons that seemed unknown to me at the time, but are pretty obvious now, like, you know, racism. But Pretty much just like anything I did outside the white binary, which at times was like just existing, like looking and being Asian was very much foreign and weird to people around me. And as I moved to Portland and started college, like it instantly felt like my world had opened up in an instant, like not saying that we don't have problems here because we absolutely do. But for the first time I had predominantly non-white friends and like I definitely resonated with the queer community here and like I finally had the words to describe these feelings and experiences that I had been repressing for so long 
and it's really become central to everything that I do and want to do now in terms of like creating a better experience for myself and other marginalized folks too. I think moving to a city can be for kids who are either queer or kids of color who grew up in predominantly white communities, like can be such a incredible experience, maybe even a little overwhelming. I moved to San Francisco when I graduated from college and I grew up in a small town. I not a rural town, but a small town. And I went to college in a small town. And when I moved to San Francisco, literally my whole interior world exploded because I was like, oh, like this is who I am. Or, you know, like there are other people that are like me or that are people that I want, you know, that I aspire to be like, where I never found that anywhere else that I had previously been. It was like, I was so sheltered. So definitely felt the same way yeah. as moving up to Portland. <laughs> I can relate. Yeah, I moved from a small town to San Francisco and this was like in the early 90s too. So it was kind of a, a very different time, but a very magical time. Big adjustment. Yes. <laughs> so where, where did you go to school? You went to... I went to the Art Institute of Portland. Okay. Went to the Art Institute of Portland and then you, you graduated and you started out in the agency world, yes? Yeah. So... You've written a bit about how aspects of your experience in the agency world were difficult and that this led to your leaving and moving into freelance work. So tell us that story, like what you experienced and how that experience forced a change that has led to the kind of work you do now. Yeah, honestly, it was like really much less of like a single big incident and more so just like an accumulation of like not so great things happening at multiple design jobs. I just like particularly remember being like very excited coming out of design school. Like I was very much like the definition of like doe-eyed and optimistic. I was ready to take on the Portland design industry. And the reality of it was that it was much less glamorous than I had thought. Probably the most shocking thing that I found out was when I started my first job and I walked in and everyone was white. And I was like, what do you mean? Like we're in a company that has hundreds of employees, like predominantly all women, like all sorts of disciplines. And I remember being only able to find like maybe five people who weren't white or white passing in the whole building. Wow. And like certainly there was like quite a few racial microaggressions like to be expected in that environment, which happened a lot. But it was really just like the power dynamic and lack of presence that bothered me the most. And like as I switched jobs to and like tried out different positions and agencies, like I found the same patterns to be true, like amplified by increasing ageism and misogyny is like I found myself in more like traditional agencies ran by like now literally all white men working for other bad white men and you know combine this with like the never-ending like grind culture expectations of capitalism you know failed salary increases and like the last straw was like the pandemic started and my wages were cut significantly and I couldn't pay my bills and I just put my two weeks notice in and that was it it really was just sort of this big realization that I was trying to make jobs work that weren't designed for me at all, or really anyone for that matter. So I just started doing work on my own. Like, granted, at this point, I had been working freelance um, on the side for a few years with like a good variety of contract and client work. So it wasn't like I was just like quitting my job for nothing. <laughs> right. And I, you know, it's interesting. I think this is such a common story, you know, that like this sort of international sort of global crisis happens and it makes everybody evaluate whether they're what they're doing is you know making them happy or whether they're in a toxic work environment and so many people have made these shifts 
as a result of this very terrible thing, but shifts that were really ultimately for them very positive. And I assume that that's true, you know, for you. As a designer and illustrator, you prioritize work with BIPOC businesses and organizations now, working directly in the equity space as a force for good. And those are your words. Talk about why you've made that the focus of your work. I'd also love for you to share some of the projects you've worked on over the past couple of years and since you made this shift and what what those projects have meant to you. Absolutely. It's kind of like a double-edged motivation, like one in that I was honestly quite a bit sick or really just tired of working with only white-ran organizations and like corporations doing bad things. Like I just wanted more for myself and I wanted to feel proud of the work I was doing. And two, in that starting a business can be quite overwhelming as it is, but like when you amplify that with years of generational trauma, like oppression and other forces of capitalism that just consistently put down marginalized folks, like it definitely creates an unfair advantage. Like one that even I felt as like a very white passing Korean American, like trying to launch my own design business. Like I've always just wanted to empower other people to do their thing and like having the tools and resources to good design is so incredibly powerful. Like especially in spaces that historically hasn't been used for good intentions. And, you know, although I've had the pleasure, I think of working with so many great organizations and companies over the past years that I feel like I'm definitely going to miss one, like the Conscious Kid, the Movement Cooperative, I Am a Voter, a kid's book about more recently. I think the bulk of my studio work has been working directly with small BIPOC business owners, really creating and launching their dreams one by one. So that's honestly probably felt the most significant to me and meaningful just because it feels so personal and I think a lot like my own experience. And I I imagine that the work that you do sort of like opens the door for other projects in the same arena. You know, when you are, we're going to get into this in a second, but, but you're really outspoken on Instagram in particular about social justice and oppression and I imagine that, and that's sort of separate from your client work. I mean, it covers the same, you know, overall sort of umbrella, but, you know, there's your client work and then there's the sort of education work that you do. And, you know, a lot of times people will say to me, oh, how do you get all of these great gigs with organizations who are forward thinking? And I was like, because I talk about my politics openly on Instagram and that might turn some people off, but it's really going to turn some people on. And so... I love that you've been so open about your own story and your own education and like sharing that information with other people. And I imagine that that also opens you up to to different client work that might not otherwise have been open to you. People find you. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I feel like just people come with me with that intention now. So it's definitely opened up a lot of experiences that I just didn't have the privilege to like have people reach out to me. I just never had those connections before. And leading with those values definitely attracts people. Yeah, I, 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 somewhere on your website, it says like, if any of this, I, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's like, if any of this is, makes you uncomfortable, then it's probably not a good match, right? Like, yes. you know, you're very open and forward about about who you are. And I, and I love that so much. I mean, I personally believe you have one of the most powerful voices on social media today. And at that moment, when you decided you were going to use your art and your platform to speak out about things like white supremacy and oppression... How did that feel for you in that moment or in that series of moments? What excited you the most and what scared you, if anything? Well, first off, like you were too kind because I am absolutely fangirling about talking to you right now. So like (laughs) it means the world to hear that you value my voice. I'm like, what? That's amazing. (laughs) 
But in terms of like deciding to speak out on my platform through art, it was really just like a long time in the making, like kind of the last formality and deciding that I didn't want to create this barrier between my personal and professional beliefs anymore. So it really felt like such a relief once I did it. Like it wasn't even that big of a deal once I had done it. But when I initially created, I think the first piece that went viral later, which was a guide to white privilege, like I remember like this very instant feeling of like therapeutic relief of like being able to put these thoughts that I've been feeling for so long into something that felt meaningful and also just getting an overwhelmingly positive response from other marginalized people was just like very fulfilling and validating. This was around the same time that I also left my job. So this was kind of like the start of something new and exciting. I think probably the scariest part was just how fast everything happened. Like I practically woke up to 100,000 followers overnight, which was like amazing at the time. But like I was woefully unprepared for like what that would mean to have a large account and like protecting my safety and health in the process. It was just a lot. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. My following has grown much more slowly, but I have talked to many people over the years who've had similar experiences to you, like had a viral post or, you know, several or, you know, some celebrity has, you know, exposed them to a new audience and that they were unprepared. And I think especially when you're somebody who speaks out about things that are unfortunately controversial, it's especially, you know, potentially dangerous. So what did you end up doing when you were like, okay, I've got, you know, overnight 100,000 new followers, I need to protect myself and I need to approach this in a way that's different than before? Yeah, I think it was just kind of a later realization because at first I didn't really know what that meant at all. Like I was just like, oh, well, I should respond to every comment, respond to every message because these people seem nice. And then like overwhelmingly the messages like weren't very nice. Like I was getting death threats over email through DMs and like I was generally like very afraid. Like I think I took off several weeks from social media because I was just telling my friends and family like I don't know what to do. Like I feel like I'm getting harassed on there. I'm not sure what I should be posting. Should I be doing anything at all? So I think a lot of it was just like getting back in and taking small steps and like more preparing myself. A lot of it too is just making intentional decisions of like, I'm going to limit my comments so people that aren't my followers cannot comment things. And that instantly reduced like all the instances of harm by like 90%. I stopped looking at direct messages because it was very traumatic. It was not a great time. And I've just been slowly drawing boundaries on that. Okay, I can't share my location anymore in my story. I can't share certain personal details about me because there is people that are looking for that information. So a lot of it's just been being very intentional about what I'm sharing. Yeah, I I can relate to a lot of that. I'm sure for you, it was much more extreme than I've experienced. But even the, I've never had a death threat, but I've had some pretty nasty messages. And like, they're very jarring. I. I think in my mind's eye, I'm like supposed to be the person who doesn't care about those things or knows that that person is, you know, is not somebody I should be listening to, but they're very painful and, and anxiety producing. So I'm glad that you figured out ways to, you know, make sure that (laughs) they're, you know, that you're protecting yourself from them and that you have boundaries. That's, it's just so important. And we are going to talk a little bit more about self-care in a minute because it's something that you do sort of talk about a lot. What, you know, we specifically this idea of being an educator on social media, which is sort of how I think about you. I was another person I follow, Blair Amani, who I'm sure, you know, um, similar account, like really your, your work and your platform are really dedicated to educating others. And so much of it is based on your own experience. But I imagine 
some of it is stuff you need to research, and we'll talk about that in a second. How has the experience of being somebody who educates other people, especially on difficult topics, what's that been like for you, and how has it changed your audience or your engagement with your audience? Yeah, you know, honestly, this is a hard one for me because, like, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. A huge part of me is, like, very grateful and privileged to, like, have such a large reach and platform. Like, to be financially able to create free art and resources, like, is rewarding and that absolutely has to be acknowledged. But there's definitely, like, this bad side of social media that I think we all know know about but choose to brave anyway. Like, having to use these very weird arbitrary metrics, like, to gauge the success of our posts, like, ultimately our work and our beliefs, like being upset when it doesn't align with our expectations and goals and like that complicates things a lot when the work is personal like personal to your rights your freedoms your joy like it's not just a silly instagram campaign and i think also the fast-paced nature of social media really demands content every second really and you become aware pretty quickly of how people will turn on you or simply disregard you when you're not making it free easy and in mass quantities for them like they want Yeah. So I think ultimately it's led me to step back a lot from engaging with my audience, like, and being more mindful when I do from previous bad experiences, because like at the end of the day, it's impossible to meet these standards, you know, even the standards that I'm looking to keep. So ultimately I just try to create what brings me joy and fulfillment first. And like, it's even better when it resonates with others too. That's awesome. I, I can relate a lot to that. Everything you just said as well. How do you decide what will be your next piece of educational information or, or, you know, the theme of whatever it is you're sharing? Do you keep a running list of ideas? Like, what's the process like for you? I imagine there's some research and writing involved for you in addition to the illustration and layout. So tell us about what that's like for you. Absolutely. I wish I had a more formulaic process, but it's honestly kind of all over the place, like my creative work, like... I do have a running list of ideas that I add to pretty much daily, like most of which are derived from like very long shower TED talks in my head. (laughs) But like there's definitely a huge element of like timeliness and reactive urgency that I think comes from working on social platforms. And like, I hate to admit that, but it's true that like the attention span of these platforms is so short. So you're always aware of, you know, what is trending, what is being talked about and wanting to kind of like join that conversation. But usually once I have an idea, like depending on what it is, like, If it's just like a phrase or like a short idea with a single illustration, like it's quite honestly worked through very quickly, same day. I'll finish it in a couple of hours, like post it a couple of minutes later. It's very last minute. But if it's something more in depth, like an illustrated series, like these guides I've done in the past, it can be quite a process. Like I'll usually spend, you know, a week or two writing out and refining a content outline, you know, spending a few days cross-referencing and researching to make sure, you know, I've looked in different perspectives and I'm not presenting this information in a way that's disrespectful to it. Mm-hmm. And then the actual, like, design and layout process is, like, a good six to ten hours just in straight drawing on Procreate and illustrating and bringing it back in the computer and writing alt tech. So, like, it's very involved on that end. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. I did notice when I was, like, researching for this interview, I... I went and looked at how often you post and you don't post every day. I think it's like every three or four days. Yeah. And is that, is that right? Yeah. And now it makes perfect sense why. And it even is surprising to me that like, you know, that you're posting that often and I'm sure you're reposting some things as well. But I think a lot of times people don't understand like really what goes into 
I think they imagine somehow that we wake up in the morning and just like draw the thing and then put it out into the world. And it actually is very time consuming and is a lot of labor, emotional labor, intellectual labor, all of that. And I, I feel like so many people are learning from you. Do do you ever get messages from people or comments from people that you've actually helped them change their mind about something that they previously, you know, were struggling with? I think so. I mean, more so at the beginning stages. I feel like I got a lot of messages like that and a lot of comments that mostly just from like, I think marginalized people being like, hey, I had no idea how to present this topic to like my very conservative family who doesn't understand this. And this was just a really good way that I could approach that conversation. And I've definitely had like an influx, I think, of white people being like, wow, I've never thought of it this way. And like, I have very mixed feelings about those types of responses. But like, definitely, there's been a lot of meaningful interactions, I think, of people inflecting and reviewing that information and definitely feeling like they've learned something. Mm -hmm. That's great. So Tell us about this new children's book. I I just released an interview last week with Kyle Steed, who also did a, a book about, his was a book about boredom. So we spent an, an entire hour on my podcast talking about boredom. Yours is called? A Little Book About Activism. A Little Book About Activism. Thank you. I <laughs> wanted to make sure I got the title right. And, and it's for little, little kids. Yeah. So tell us about that book, sort of how it came about and what it was like working on that. Yeah, of course. So my book, a little book about activism, it's part of a kid's book about like board book line. So it's geared towards a bit of a younger audience, I think more in like the three to five Mm -hmm. genre, which normally their books are usually kind of like age seven and up. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's about activism. But that word doesn't mean a whole lot, I think, to a child who isn't familiar with that term. So it's really just about developing, I think, the strategy behind activism, like while introducing that language, which is ultimately just empathy led problem solving, like both acknowledging and identifying problems in our world and like finding solutions within community strength. Mm. The funny part about the whole thing is that it started when I bought a few of their books just randomly for a family gift. And like out of nowhere, the founder emailed me like casually the next day, just like, hey, I've seen your stuff on social media. It's really cool. Would you ever be interested in like illustrating one of ours? And I was just like, what? Yes, please. And like, Literally, the whole thing was just like a whirlwind, like it somehow came together a few months later, like we brainstormed the idea together, like I quite literally wrote and illustrated it in a matter of weeks. And like, honestly, I'm just in shock from it all happening so quickly. What kismet too that you like were buying the books in that very same day. I love it when stuff like that happens. It's like, yes, this is meant to be. That's super exciting. And I can speak from experience having written and illustrated many books that doing it in a short period of time can be really stressful. Did you have to like set other things aside for a period of time? Definitely. I definitely had to like take a break from client work, especially for those two weeks. And it was very like intensive of getting all the storyboards done, all the illustrations done in like a few days. I'm I'm even more impressed. I actually haven't held the book or seen it. <laughs> I'm going to look out for it now. But but yeah, like I mean, even a a very short kids book, like doing something in two weeks is is pretty incredible. So congratulations on that. And I will link to that book in the show notes. Let's talk about taking care of yourself. We referenced this a bit earlier, and I think it's come up a few times. One of the things that happens in the grind of agency work or even being self-employed client work, you know, being a being a somebody who is an influencer on Instagram, it can be exhausting and soul-sucking. And I I've heard you talk about taking time for yourself, how this is something relatively new for you. 
since you left the grind of agency work. So how did you manage to get off the hamster wheel and live a more centered and balanced life? And what's that like for you? And and how, how has it impacted your creative process? Yeah, well, I'll be honest that like, it's still a huge work in progress for me. Like you said, very relatively new. But I think sort of the tipping point was like quite literally finding myself horribly burnt out and like unable to do anything for weeks, like probably the tenth sometime for the year before realizing, hey, maybe I should change something. But it really started just as like a means of wanting to be more productive in spite of burnout. Like I literally cannot do any work if I'm drained all the time, so I should rest more. And then it took me even longer to like realize that just wanting to take time for myself because I want to, not with intentions to like renew my productivity by it, was like more than okay. And a lot of that's just been being more intentional with my schedule, like getting rid of those bad agency habits of overextending myself, like starting to space out projects more and like saying no more frequently, which is still very, very hard. And honestly, like it's just done wonders for my creative process because like I'm actually able to give so much more time and attention to like projects that I do have when there's less of them. Like I'm not working last minute all the time and like rushing everything out like I had to before. And like outside of work, like it's just really allowed me to be so much more present with the things I want to do that are completely outside of the art world, just spending time with my family and friends and just random hobbies. Yeah, I can relate to so much of that as well. I I feel like for me, I have been, I hit this period of kind of, really dark burnout in 2016. And what are we at now? Like six years later. And I'm still like, since that happened, I've been kind of on this path to boundaries, balance, saying no, spacing out projects, getting help when I need it, not feeling guilty or bad for saying no or taking more rest, those kinds of things. And it sounds easy, but it's actually the hardest work that I've ever done because the more, and maybe you experience this too, like the more demand there is for your work, there is a certain energy in that. There's a certain pull that that has on you. And I have made the mistake many times of getting sucked into that pull and then regretting it later. And so I feel like every year that passes, I get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better at learning the lessons and in creating more balance and more boundaries, but I don't know that I'll ever completely arrive at the place where I have like the perfect balance between work and downtime and friends and all of that. But yeah. I'm like, I'm not sure if it even exists, but like, I'm glad to hear that it gets easier because I feel like it's, I've been trying to do it for like five years and like it's slowly getting better each year, but I'm just like, man, just a lot of mind shift, I think changes as well. And just realizing that it's not just making time for my schedule. It's just changing the idea that like my productivity is like central to my success and my core being, which like it isn't. And I think that's more than something you can just change overnight. Exactly. Exactly. And I I do love that it's also a topic of conversation right now. Like it's in the, it's in the tea we drink every day, right? Like people (laughs) are really, especially those of us who have kind of found a, you know, had a successful artistic practice you know, it's like we're conditioned to feel so grateful for it because so many artists are struggling. And yet it can be really damaging to work all of the time, especially for the creative process, not to mention like physical and, you know, emotional kind of damage that, you know, it wreaks on you. Mm-hmm. When you're daydreaming about the kind of work you want to be doing, say, in in five years, what do you daydream about doing? Like, what does your life look like? 
that's like a really good question because honestly I'm not too sure like I think a huge part of me like wants to just say like oh I'll be doing a better job of what I'm doing now like making art and taking on projects that are meaningful to me but I think an even larger part of me is just like I want to get out of client work another part of me is like I don't think I just want to work like I think the reality is that I don't daydream of any future really where my existence is reliant on work and money like it has been now and in the past like I just want to make things and help people in the process and if like that happens down the line that would be amazing <laughs> right and wherever that takes you right yeah like in whatever form that that takes of all of the things you've put out into the world on social media over the last couple of years do you have a do you have a favorite post that you've made or educational piece that you've put out that is your favorite and what is that and why? Definitely. I'm like, I know what first comes to mind. I made a guide that was like a guide to the model minority myth and obviously very personal to me. And I don't talk a lot about the Asian American experience because I've had a very mixed experience being mixed Korean and American. But that was just like so much personal stuff in there. Like all the research was very like also traumatic, but also very, I think, therapeutic and doing everything for that. And like, I remember also just the responses I got from it was obviously from a lot of, like, Asian people, like, on Instagram, just feeling very validated and fulfilled by this and having a way to explain this to people who just didn't understand. And I think that's probably my been my favorite piece so far just because it was so personal. Mm-hmm. And it definitely just felt very nice. It felt very nice to make and get that off my chest. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Can you share with us some other ideas for new guides that you're working on now? Uh, it's bad because I have don't have a lot of ideas for guides because honestly, I've been in like a rut of I don't want to make guides anymore sometimes because they are so exhausting yeah. and they don't get a good response on social media anymore. So it's definitely kind of like a mixed thing where I'm like, oh, I want to make more short form content, which like I hate myself for saying that because like there's so much nuance and complexity to this topic that I'm like, yeah. I can't just do it in a short form, right? It needs to be a guide, yeah. right? But then it's exhausting to, yeah. to work on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, social media has changed so much. I mean, the stuff that used to get so much traction for me no longer does. And like you, I'm trying to pay less attention to likes and engagement and just put out work that I love to make. I wrote a big post about that a couple of weeks ago because, I mean, I have almost half a million followers and I, my engagement is like pretty shitty. I mean, occasionally it'll be fairly high if I like, there's just certain things that I post about that get people riled up. <laughs> I, I get that. Yeah. And like, I know, but I, it's exhausting to write those posts every day or even once a week for that matter. And so what I'd really like to post is just like what I drew in my sketchbook or, you know, the stuff that either people don't see because of the algorithm or that people don't really have anything to say about. And I'm really dedicated myself to just being like, I don't really care if it gets, you know, for me, you know, like 1500 likes would be really bad. <laughs> and I just have learned to not care anymore. And I, I can genuinely say I've, I've sort of like crossed that barrier, but it took me a while because so much of my identity and my like sense of whether or not what I was putting out into the world was high quality or not was based on that. And I'm wondering if you have experienced something similar. Oh, definitely. 
I think a lot of it was just realizing that like as soon as the stuff that I really liked wasn't doing well, I was just like, oh, this is a reflection of me and the things I believe in. People don't like this stuff. when it's really all these other factors. So I think it's just been, it's still definitely an ongoing process for me, like figuring out what I want to post, what that is, like not tying metric success to what I like, which I think previously had what I'd done in the past to make it feel rewarding. So now that I'm like, man, these guides aren't doing great. I'm like, do I just dislike making them or is it just that my following doesn't care about it? So it's been kind of like discovery in that I think I've been posting a lot of new stuff, a lot of stuff about self-care and other things that I used to talk about. And then I'm like, oh, this seems interesting. I'm having an interest here and it's not usually the stuff I post about. So it's been kind of a trial and error figuring out mm -hmm. what do I even like to post anymore? Yeah. I made this Venn diagram once that was like kind of about how I decide what to post and like one of the circles was like, you know, just basically following what I'm interested in, right? And like making art about that thing. And then another circle was like paying attention to like my values and whether or not what I was posting was like aligned with my values. Mm -hmm. And the third circle was paying attention to what resonates for my audience. And that was, it's tricky. It's like that third circle, the first two make so much sense to me and that's still my filter. And I used to really think about okay, well, is this going to resonate with my audience? And like, is this something they're going to be interested in? And then I, I started to realize, especially when the algorithm wasn't favoring me anymore, like, am I, I'm not, I'm a human being, right? Like not a content producer, right? Like this isn't my job to produce content that, you know, every person is going to, you know, or the majority of my followers are going to be excited about. And I'm just, I'm an artist who like wakes up every day like everyone else and like has the same insecurities and the same, you know, exhaustion, not wanting to spend, you know, six hours on an Instagram post or whatever. And I really had to force myself to let go of that. And I've noticed since I made that post on social media a few weeks ago that other people are talking about it more now too. And it makes me really happy because, oh, and I don't know if you saw this, but Instagram is also changing the way you can view things like I saw it like they're adding like different yeah there's going to be like a timeline a chronological timeline and then you can pick your favorites and then you can have it the way it is now so it'll be interesting to see once that happens like how both consuming social media changes for us and also how you know like how our work is received definitely especially so. I just feel like the feed has been unbeknownst to me how the algorithm works so it really just feels like engagement and things like that flow so randomly at times throughout the past few years that it's really hard to like figure out what's even going on when I do want to be intentional about it exactly what keeps you going man I'm like that's a big question but I'm just like <laughs> sorry <laughs> the desire of a better world you know the endless possibilities like I think honestly it's just like things everyday things my dogs coffee good food my partner great friends I'm like I think that's what keeps me going yeah I like all of those things too as motivators <laughs> I think it just shows that you're that you're just that you're human <laughs> what gives you hope in this very weird time that we are living <laughs> I think like the newer generation, like as much of a pessimist as I am, like I actually have a lot of hope and trust in the younger generation, like myself included, because I am on the last year of Gen Z, which is embarrassing for myself because I don't feel like Gen Z, but it's also exciting. But amidst like all the horrible things that like are continuing to happen in our nation, in our world, like there definitely is just this overwhelming sense of hope that's definitely always been there in younger generations. But 
I've definitely felt like rising from young people today, like especially the past few years, like really growing and strengthening, you know, in spite of everything. Like I'm just seeing a lot of increase in compassion, like this desire for justice and just like a better world in all that's like very refreshing. And it's also really, really powerful. And that definitely gives me hope for the future, like that we're in good hands. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you. I, I agree with you totally and have have the same hope for the future. Okay, now we're going to do some some rapid fire questions before we close. Ready? I'm nervous, but yes, I'm just going to apologize ahead of time if these come out bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're all really easy. Okay. Um, so don't worry. Okay. Dog or cat? Dog. Night or morning? Morning. Okay. Oh, another, I'm a morning person too. <laughs> what time do you go to bed at night? You know, lately, like 12 p.m. Okay. But I also just get up very early and don't sleep. <laughs> okay. Okay. This one's going to be hard for you. Pink or green? I think pink. I'm literally wearing pink and green right now. This is not a fair <laughs> thing to ask. I know. It's. I went and looked at your artwork and I, I chose two colors you use a lot. Okay. Pink. Pink for the win. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this question. Digital or analog? I think digital, which pains me to say. Yeah, I know. I'm, I've never been much of an analog artist. I am both, and I love both, but digital, I don't know. Ever since I like went over the digital divide, <laughs> I guess it's called, or the digital bridge in 2017, I'm like, it's just changed the way I work in such a positive way. Okay, podcast or music? Music. Music. You listen to music while you work? I do. I'm like, that's like... 100% of my day is just blasting music. Okay, awesome. Favorite band right now? Ooh, less of a band, but Gus Dapperton has been a lot on my tracks lately. Awesome. Summer or winter? I think winter. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you did grow up in the Pacific Northwest where winter is like really can be super hard because the sun doesn't shine very often. Mm -hmm. Where on the Oregon coast did you grow up, by the way? Pretty close to Tillamook. Like I grew up okay. um, like in like the Nestucco Valley area. Okay. Yeah. I have a house in Manzanita, which is in Tillamook County. And I ride my bike all over that area. And you're right. It's very rural. <laughs> yes. Parts of it are very beautiful though. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction for sure. Okay. Do you read? I do read a lot. And I think I read to escape reality. So I'm like, I'm all about creating fake worlds. Okay. I love that. I am also an avid reader and also love fiction. Okay, last one. Sushi or pizza? Pizza. Only because I don't really like sushi. <laughs> oh, you don't? Interesting. See, I thought I was going to make this hard. But that I think it's because people always ask me what my favorite food is, and I can't never decide between sushi and pizza. So I assume it must be the same for everyone else, but it's clearly not. <laughs> Corn, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm going to link to your Instagram, your website, and your children's book in the show notes. And people can learn more about you and what you do and potentially hire you. And since we're both in Portland, I hope we get to meet in person someday. Yes, please. Like, this was amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. 
please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.